You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. What follows is a lecture called Insecurity and the Invisible, the Challenge of Spiritual Insecurity. It was delivered as a lunchtime seminar at ILLA in early 2020. A longer abstract is available in the podcast information. The lecture was delivered by Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Jonathan is a reader in African politics at the University of Birmingham and the head of the International Development Department there. Jonathan's also been a fellow at STIAS, the Stellenbosch Institute for Advanced Study in South Africa. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia, for, for inviting me. It's really, really great to be here. Um, thank you for the Institute for supporting me coming over here from, from Canberra. And thanks to you guys for coming along. I know it's a busy day and it's lunchtime. Um, so um, I hope this will be a good use of, of this hour's time. Um, yeah, I hope I'm not going to be a, a, just a white talking head um, saying things which are uh, traditionally come out of those sorts of people's minds. And I've actually got a, a former student of mine here um, who can attest to, to that one way or the other, um, maybe after we've finished. Um, so it's great to, uh, <laughs> great to see her here. This is, um, this is a, a presentation which comes out of some research I've been doing with a colleague at Durham University in the UK, Cherry Leonardi. Uh, and this particular paper um, is currently, well, it's, it's under review with the journal. We just had a revise and resubmit, so it's uh, at a very critical stage in terms of developing it further and, and finessing some of the arguments. And it comes out of work that we've been doing um, between about 2016 and 2018 uh, around the issues that I'm going to be talking about, but particularly in relation to uh, northwest Uganda, where both of us have done most of our work over the years. We're both East African uh, either historians, in Cherry's case, or political scientists in mine. That's the part of the world that we're interested in. But as, as you're going to find out during the presentation, we take a little bit of a different direction um, in that regard. So the question that I want to start off with is what counts as security or what counts as insecurity? Um, because this, these are questions where the answer really, really matters. Um, for scholars, it matters because it determines the shape and the, the boundaries of key disciplinary debates. Uh, but beyond the academy, uh, what counts as security or insecurity really matters as well. It affects the, the lives of, and uh, everyday experiences of millions, uh, depending on how these concepts are defined by governments, by organisations, by international institutions and so forth. Um, for a while, you know, cognate concepts like, uh, like well-being or development, they may be uh, important in kind of mobilising uh, interventions or projects or uh, programmes across the world. Their ability to mobilise these resources and particularly the, the attention of the most powerful actors within society, both nationally, regionally and globally, really pales in comparison to uh, what, what is mobilised when one talks about something being a security issue or an issue of, of insecurity. So security is not just a, a descriptive term, it's not just a, a buzzword, it's a, it's a discourse of action. If something see, is seen to be counting as security, however one goes about doing that, um, it becomes the concern or even the responsibility of powerful actors, policymakers, practitioners. And indeed, in many cases, it, it actually empowers uh, discursively or even legally um, these groups to actually act. Um, and I might have to do this on the, the key. It's fine. I haven't really got many slides, so I'll just do that. Um, 
I mean, as, as most of you will know, since the end of the Cold War, there's been quite a big shift in, in the way uh, the international scholarly and practitioner sphere has thought about what counts as security, moving from a kind of very state-centric idea of what security means, so uh, threats to state borders posed by rebel groups, um, nuclear weapons, uh, international um, invasion, that sort of thing, to shifting the, the referent object of security to the human being, so most famously through the 94 UNDP Human Development Report, which brought this to light, although its, its origins are uh, earlier than that in the work of people like Amartya Sen, focusing on what people instinctively understand security to mean, so focusing away from rebels, um, international stuff, to more threats to people, things like hunger, disease, crime, repression, the things that affect people in everyday life. And this sort of move towards human security has been criticised by scholars for lots of different reasons, mostly very uh, legitimately, um, but at least in part because it opens up security to what Roland Paris and others have described as being you know, vague to the point of uh, irrelevant. It's no longer possible to operationalise what security means when you expand it to this level. The, the argument that we make in our work uh, is in some respects the opposite of that, um, that actually contemporary explorations and, and debates on security and insecurity um, in both scholarship and, and the practice world largely overlook a central dimension of how the phenomenon is actually experienced and articulated by many across the world. And specifically in those instances where uh, insecurity, and I'm going to say insecurity from now on to mean often both insecurity and security, just to cut down on the words, uh, particularly where that's derived from um, assurances or, uh, or fears relating to the spiritual realm, however one understands that term. Spiritual insecurity, which is a term, uh, as far as we're aware, which has been coined by the anthropologist Adam Ashworth in his work on South Africa, is a great concern and distress for many, just as spiritual security um, can provide a sense of peace and uh, safety for even those in the most dire of circumstances. And indeed, for some, the more dire the circumstances, the more significant that dimension of security can be. But this sort of uh, analysis and focus uh, remains largely absent from contemporary security studies, critical security studies or, or the discipline more generally. So one of the things we're really trying to do in this work um, is to, to problematise this conceptual and empirical blind spot within uh, security studies and international relations more generally and indeed within policy around security. And we're also trying to build on the, uh, the emerging so-called um, vernacular security agenda within security studies, which tries to place emphasis on how insecurity and security is experienced and formulated by communities traditionally overlooked in the discipline. But there's a reason why we don't really go too far into the vernacular um, agenda, the vernacular security agenda. We have a slightly different reading of this when it comes to spiritual experiences and insecurity. Um, particularly because uh, contemporary explorations of these sorts of phenomena, whether or not the word security is ascribed to them, and often it isn't, um, focus largely on communities in the global south. So in particular, Africa, uh, but also Southeast Asia, and to some extent, the Pacific as well. But as our own fieldwork in northwest Uganda underlines, and I'll talk to that in a moment, there's actually very little substantive that distinguishes the, the nature and intensity of spiritual insecurity uh, experienced in post-colonial societies from that experienced elsewhere across the world, even if, uh, as is often important, we have to acknowledge the, uh, the salience of local contexts, uh, frameworks and cosmologies. And indeed, the, the division between a sort of uh, enlightened and secularised north and a superstitious, 
South is located more in, as we all know, uh, colonial and post-colonial processes of knowledge production and racial hierarchization than in any uh, substantive or empirical reality. So spiritual security, spiritual insecurity uh, is, is a global phenomenon we maintain and saturates state-society relations, even in notionally um, de jure or de facto secular polities. And so we argue for an appreciation of the concept which adopts a locally inflected but nonetheless global epistemology. Um, and now with regard to where we're coming from in relation to international relations, and I appreciate that not everyone in this room will be familiar or interested in uh, international relations, which I quite understand, having studied it for a number of years. Um, we were situating our contribution within uh, a security studies literature, which at a fundamental level, uh, we would say, understands security and insecurity now um, as beginning with human experience and perception. This is a part and parcel of the human security agenda, but it goes beyond that. Um, as well. And indeed, the, the physical and the bodily have become an increasingly central focus of international relations uh, and scholarly attention in that regard since the 2010s, in what a number of scholars have referred to as uh, the material turn in international relations. And a couple of examples here of influential papers and, and books that have come out of that. Uh, intersecting with and influenced by uh, feminist scholarship and debates on uh, the co constitution of things uh, and politics. The field since the, the 2000s has progressively come to think about insecurity in terms of embodiment, in terms of materiality, uh, and the ways in which bodily experiences of security and insecurity are influenced and governed uh, by power structures and the sensory world. What's surprising about this then, you know, despite the, the value uh, and influence of this literature and indeed of security studies more generally, is the fact that there's been a failure to really engage conceptually or empirically with alternative experiences of insecurity, um, particularly those linked to spiritual encounters, um, experiences and frameworks. Um, it's surprising because while much of sort of post-enlightenment political theory in the West has sought to draw sharp lines between the, the spiritual and the temporal, the material, the immaterial, the rational and the superstitious. In fact, spiritual insecurity and spiritual security is frequently experienced as a distinctly physical and bodily phenomenon. This is something I'm happy to speak about more um, if people are interested. Which is not to say, of course, that those experiencing spiritual security or insecurity um, understand them themselves purely in terms of materiality and the body. What makes spiritual insecurity different from some other forms of insecurity um, is that the ultimate source of comfort or fear uh, derives from perceived power from some sort of transcendental or metaphysical thing, something which is invisible, at least to the majority of humankind. Now, before I start uh, talking about the uh, methodological approach and some of the substantive um, work we've been doing around this area, I wanted to just start off by saying a couple of things. I've got to provide some clarity here, but I don't think I actually do that, um, around how we're thinking about things like spiritual security and security and a variety of terms that are linked to it, particularly uh, concepts like witchcraft or, or sorcery, which come up in some of these discussions. Uh, and it's important there to go into the, the literature on anthropology to some extent, where some of these issues have, of course, been explored in considerably more depth than in international relations. So some scholars like Ashworth, but also people like Harry West that have looked at 
um, uh, sorcery and the invisible world in, in Mozambique have tended to look at the idea of spiritual security or insecurity in terms of something that is invisible. So Ashford says, modes of understanding the action of invisible forces and beings upon the fortunes and misfortunes of everyday life. Harry West talks about the invisible realm when he's talking about these issues in relation to Mozambique. But there's a slight challenge with the idea of the spiritual insecurity deriving from things that are invisible, um, partly because they're not always invisible to people, um, but also because there are many other things uh, which are invisible and which are seen to cause harm, which are not spiritual. Um, so, you know, things like viruses or bacteria or radiation, the sort of things that people are afraid of all over the world, but they wouldn't necessarily ascribe spiritual um, aspects to them, although um, in some cases they would. Moreover, there's a challenge here when we're talking about things like spiritual insecurity in relation to stuff like uh, demonic, demonic threat or possession or spiritual security and you know, divine protection but of sort of conflating the idea of spiritual security, insecurity with, with religion um, uh, as a sort of concept uh, or defining spiritual insecurity as basically a form of belief system or, or cosmology. And there's obviously been a, a very extensive debate in anthropology around trying to uh, uh, delineate or disaggregate the relationship between religion and sort of occult forces of various different kinds, which has ultimately been uh, pretty inconclusive. Um, so one approach that's taken by some is to not use uh, English language terms at all, to go for the actual uh, indigenous terminology. Uh, an alternative approach by someone like Terence Ranger has involved trying to clearly delineate um, a distinction between religion on the one hand and witchcraft, the occult, etc. on the other. But again, we, we find these sorts of approaches pretty uh, unsatisfactory, um, primarily because, as, as Peter Gishira, who's written a lot on, on witchcraft, has argued, uh, witchcraft's very strength, and this is a quote from him, is that it defies all classification and distinction. The diffuseness of the discourse seems to be the secret of its power. And indeed, even trying to uh, conceptualise or define something like, like witchcraft is fraught with a whole level of challenges on, on numerous different uh, cleavages um, because you've got the risk of generalizing, you've got the risk of decontextualizing and of course you've got the risk, uh, particularly if you're a white person from Britain, uh, of exoticizing as well when you're trying to define a concept like that. But I think even beyond all of that sort of stuff, um, one thing that we came to was ultimately that it's actually not particularly helpful um, to provide a clear definition um, of a concept like witchcraft or, or sorcery or, or magic or the occult. Um, and however we try and do that, we never really seem to get any closer to how the phenomenon is experienced and conceptualized by those um, who, uh, who fear it or derive satisfaction or reassurance from it. So we adopt a sort of loose terminology uh, that can do justice to the constant shifts uh, and ambiguities of the central notions. Uh, and indeed, it's more helpful, we think, to think about things like witchcraft um, and other occult phenomena um, which are described by respondents and others as something which grafts onto existing uh, frameworks, cleavages and anxieties rather than being something which can necessarily be isolated uh, and defined because as, so as soon as you start trying to do that, uh, you start obscuring and misrepresenting its power um, and, and how it actually operates. 
And we take a sort of similar approach to the word spiritual as well, a similarly loose conceptual framework. The spiritual is ultimately uh, neither fully visible nor invisible. It's neither fully material nor immaterial. Uh, it's a worldview that accepts the existence of, of powerful forces, whether these are malign or benign, but which cannot be wholly perceived or, or wholly controlled, but can nonetheless profoundly influence a person's life up to and including uh, salvation. Um, so these are forces that operate in the temporal realm, often with visible effect uh, and consequence, but remain ultimately invisible to many or most, not, uh, not to all in most cases. Um, now what we take as our, our point of departure in this work, um, a case study from the West Nile border region of, of Uganda, um, partly because this is a part of the world that myself and my co-author have been working on for, for a decade or so. It's a part of the world we find really interesting and compelling. And we undertook field work here uh, in 2017 and 18 with the initial purpose of the field work to try and compare and contrast um, official articulations of security threats, so the sort of things that state officials at the kind of national level might talk about in terms of security with everyday understandings expressed by a range of uh, more locally based actors, so uh, elders, community leaders, market traders, teachers, but also um, South Sudanese refugees. This is a part of Uganda, where there's a large number of South Sudanese refugees, and indeed they come over in waves from the 1980s, but particularly in the last couple of years. So we conducted around 70 interviews with respondents in major towns, but also more uh, rural areas, and initially we were asking interviewees to reflect on, in general terms, about their current and past experiences of security and insecurity. Um, so asking them general questions like, uh, you know, when, when did you most feel secure in your life? When did you most feel least secure? What makes you worried? What makes you less worried? These sorts of more open questions. And in some cases, not all, um, not even the majority, but in some cases, respondents raise concerns at this point around witchcraft, but also other dimensions of spiritual or spiritual security or insecurity. Uh, the reason that we chose this region, apart from our, our own interest in it, is because of its long-standing history as a site of conflict and insecurity. So you can see that it's located at the border. This is an old map, so it should have uh, South Sudan kind of coming through here. But it's at the border between uh, Congo, formerly Sudan, now South Sudan. Uh, and it's been a site of um, a range of insurgencies, both within Uganda and externally. So it's also been the site of major movement of peoples and refugees. Um, and most recently, since 2013, um, the site of host site for a large number of refugees from South Sudan. So this kind of complex history of war, counterinsurgency, porous borders, mobility, we felt was um, able to provide quite a fertile context for thinking about how traditional state discourses of security and insecurity are challenged by everyday discourses. Um, and initially what we'd hoped to do was, was therefore try and contribute to this vernacular security literature by building in, you know, what do people say uh, on the ground about their insecurity compared to state and international discourses. And when asked to reflect um, on these sorts of questions, um, on main security and safety challenges, uh, state security and international humanitarian actors did indeed place considerable emphasis on these more traditional state-centric narratives um, of you know, the movement of people, rebel activity, that sort of thing. Uh, so quotes like, this is a frontline region, it's only 50 kilometers from the South Sudanese rebels to the refugee sites, so there's a possibility of the rebels recruiting in the settlements. Another uh, person, a district councillor, said, um, the major threats of, of security are basically two. 
One, that these communities, which is to say the South Sudanese rebels we are hosting now are mostly coming from South Sudan, where there's been a lot of lawlessness. The second threat is the state of insecurity in South Sudan. While we are seated here, it is barely eight kilometers to the border. Um, and these concerns were also raised to some extent in our interviews with people at the more local level as well, including state actors. But for most of those, really, um, insecurity derived more prominently from, from elsewhere, um, from things like poverty, livelihood, land conflict, uh, disease, ordinary criminality. Uh, people worry concerning sickness, noted one councillor. We have the issue of HIV. This is the most worrying issue, and issues of malaria. So HIV, malaria, cancer were highlighted by many of our respondents as um, something which was very frightening, partly because of um, how uh, the high mortality rate, but also because it was considered by many to be relatively recent and poorly understood phenomenon, so-called untreatable diseases in the words of, of one of our respondents. We also saw that kind of sudden or um, unexplained deaths were cited as a cause of major insecurity. Uh, and indeed, what cut across many of our respondents' accounts of insecurity was anxiety concerning the unpredictability uh, and the precarity of life, um, the sense that this was not how things used to be, that things are somehow now in a sort of disturbing and destabilizing flux. One thing that was, uh, came out of a number of our discussions, though, were that these sorts of experiences and anxieties were not just explained in terms of this language of traditional human security, disease, um, livelihood, that sort of thing, but within broader narratives of spiritual threat uh, and unease, so that, which is to say that we have narratives uh, and discourses of temporal insecurity which are intermingling with those of spiritual insecurity, uh, with malign spirits often seen as being the agent of insecurity or indeed the perpetrator of it. So the person that I mentioned that talked about sudden death as being a major fear for her also talked about it being caused by, quote, evil spirits that disturb people in their home. And what's important here is this wasn't just a kind of abstract uh, fear operating within a different epistemology um, by, you know, compared to those who were talking about disease and, and that sort of thing, um, as was the case with most of the people we spoke to who also talked about spiritual themes. These two discourses kind of fed into one another. Um, evil spirits were there before, that the young lady acknowledged, but now there is the issue of riches. People sacrifice others to get rich. So she was sort of situating her concerns uh, around uh, the spiritual dimension within broader societal unease about inequality uh, and the destructive dimensions of capitalism. And indeed, discourses of spiritual insecurity um, help to frame articulations of fear and anxiety across a whole range of issues, um, from land to the refugee communities, even to sexual infidelity. But one thing we really want to stress here, and I've got about five minutes left, so I'll, I'll, push, I'll push through, um, is that we're not just talking in this regard about the spiritual realm as providing a sense of fear and insecurity, but it was also a source of protection and safety for many as well. So the same respondent I just mentioned, um, who talked about death by evil spirits, she went on to explain that her response to this was, quote, to seek protection by believing in God. Others uh, emphasize being born again as a turning point in their, in their understandings of threat and insecurity, and religious faith as a critical sort of weapon against malicious spiritual attacks. Um, and indeed for others, uh, the risk of not securing salvation, um, which is you know, through a lack of religious devotion or a lack of clear signs somehow that one has been saved, weighed heavy as an additional source of anxiety and insecurity as well. 
So to be clear, we're not talking here um, per se about the relationship between religion and security and insecurity, and nor are we arguing that the discourses um, that we have to talked about are simply a language to describe phenomena that are in fact spirit, you know, actually empirically or scientifically resolvable. That, you know, actually they're talking about disease and they're using witchcraft as a way of talking about it. As Ashworth has noted, spiritual insecurity is related to, but not reducible to, other forms of insecurity. Um, our focus is to sort of um, try and understand uh, the uh, understandings of insecurity which are a bit more inchoate and somewhat more transcendental than a simple, this is a language to describe something else. And we're trying to uh, think about how understandings of insecurity and security structure and influence how communities in this region experience the phenomena and arguing that if they do, as, as we found, then this should surely be something that security studies thinks about. But uh, to get to my final couple of minutes, um, West Nile is obviously not unique as a site of spiritual security or insecurity. It's not unique within Uganda, it's not unique within Africa, and it's not unique um, in the wider world either. Um, as I've said, we're researchers who have primarily focused on East Africa um, throughout our careers to date, and that was our starting point for this study. Um, but as we moved through it, we thought more and more that actually many of the things that people are describing in terms of spiritual security and insecurity um, are a little different in substance, even if they're slightly different in terms of language and uh, vocabulary, from similar concerns, fears, and uh, assurances, indeed, across the world more generally. So one can point, for example, to numerous examples of exorcism being uh, sought out by individuals and communities across the, uh, the US, for example, in, in, you know, as a mechanism to uh, combat perceived malign invisible forces. So the Atlantic magazine reported in 2018 that the Catholic Archdiocese of Indianapolis had received 1,700 requests for exorcism in 2018, which was by far the most it had ever received in a single year. Uh, there's also been many other similar cases that have come to international attention in recent years, uh, from Romania to Nicaragua uh, and even to New Zealand. There was a case a few years ago of a, of a Maori Makutu uh, lifting ritual, uh, which resulted in the death by drowning of the subject um, who was the subject of exorcism. Now, I suppose one might say that um, the extent to which these sorts of examples uh, speak to wider concerns around spiritual insecurity in a place like the US uh, is open to question. But at the very least, uh, polling and sociological studies do at least suggest that over half of the US population believes that demonic possession is possible, and this is from 2018, so pretty recently. But more broadly, though, and to put it in a more kind of general historical context, throughout the, the 1980s and the early 1990s, there was an explosion of fears across much of the global north, from the UK uh, to Norway and from the US to, to Turkey, not necessarily global north, um, concerning the existence of a vast covert network of satanic cults in uh, social service and educational provision, um, which was supposedly engaged in the abduction, the abuse, uh, and the sacrifice of children. Uh, and this was a, a kind of moral panic, which has been latterly referred to as a satanic ritual abuse scandal. And it somehow captured the fears and anxieties um, of numerous groups, communities, and sectors, leading some charities, uh, and indeed the British Home Office, in one report, to assert that thousands of children had been sacrificed by demonic cults. And indeed, we also saw uh, hundreds of women coming to recover uh, memories of their own supposed ritualistic abuse at the hands of satanic cults and covens, leading to a whole uh, industry being built around interrogating the existence or treating the consequences of so-called recovered memories. 
Now, there have been some interesting sociological analyses of this phenomena, uh, looking at the links between the moral panic around satanic abuse and general societal insecurities around things like, uh, you know, supposed moral decay within society, around um, uh, societal sexual norms, the supposed decline of Christianity in public life, that sort of thing. But regardless, this particular episode underlines the continued prominence of fears concerning the malign invisible in the lives of ordinary people and communities in a wide range of different global settings. But moving away from the idea of spiritual insecurity to articulations of and appeals to spiritual security, these are also very prominent in public discourse and practice, even in polities which are considered to be de facto or de jure secular in nature. So in the United States, for example, it's commonplace for players and supporters to communally pray at the start of um, ball games of different kinds. The US president has traditionally led the, the country in a national day of prayer since 1952. Um, in Britain, uh, where I come from, senior figures in the established church, the Church of England, have called for or have led public prayers at times of perceived national crisis. So. Uh, during the Brexit and post-Brexit debate, for example. And even the, the British monarch, the head of state, is also your monarch uh, for some reason still. Um, her annual Christmas message uh, is invariably grounded in appeals to prayer and spiritual reflection as a means to tackle the, t the challenges and difficulties of everyday life. Now, of course, um, in the contemporary era, whether we're talking about the prayer breakfast or the Queen's uh, golden piano um, presentation, um, these sorts of events and ceremonies often emphasize their, their inclusivity beyond just one religious group. Um, but these remain, however, an effort to, to unite national communities and peoples around the reassuring promise of spiritual security. And they're premised on a set of assumptions around the relationship between the spiritual and the everyday uh, that such appeals will be pertinent and meaningful for those watching or listening. And indeed, beyond the realm of officialdom, um, we have to think about the dramatic increase in numbers of so-called new religious movements in the global north um, since the 1970s, from Scientology to Wicca and from Kabbalah to Baha'i. And these at least challenge the very notion that the spiritual realm is not an important source of security for many people, even in states which notionally espouse rationalism and secularism. So to conclude, um, as a range of historians have demonstrated, contemporary assumptions around the intrinsic secularism or kind of rationality of Euro-American states and societies, they tend to derive more from a, a post-Enlightenment project of uh, differentiation than from a critical appraisal of the nature of contemporary modernity. So Michael Sala has written that uh, enchantments uh, in the 19th century became, in Britain, became associated with the cognitive outlooks of groups cast as inferior within the discourse of Western elites, primitives, children, women, and the lower classes. So groups whose worldview uh, was characterized as being in opposition um, to a depiction of modernity, which arguably, as Sala notes, is a mythic construct no less enchanted than the myths it sought to overcome. And it's the powerful and influential legacy of, of this process of knowledge production, we would suggest that at the very least can help to partly explain why scholars of critical security studies have tended to overlook spiritual experiences of insecurity on their reflections of what counts as insecurity. Uh, and I'll leave it there. Thank you. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com 
forward slash Illa podcast. That's double I L A H podcast.